Let's all stand together once again for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read through verse, uh, let's go to 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's end there. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Our Father, as we commit our hearts to you, may your word Penetrate our lives. Help us, Lord, to see those things that we cannot see. Help us to touch those things that we cannot touch. Unless the Spirit of God opens our eyes and gives us the ability. Lord, left alone, all we are are dry branches. As the vine May the sap of your truth and love flow in and through this body that you so love that we might serve you and love you and obey you out of great thankfulness for all that you have done for us in in your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Late Reformed Presbyterian minister, Dr. James D. Kennedy, was founder of Evangelism Explosion. As part of the gospel presentation that he developed, the following question is asked. If you were to die today and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, probably most people in the world would answer like this. You should let me in, Lord, because I tried to do my best. You need to let me in because I'm basically a good person. As if God had a scale in heaven where if your good works outweighed your bad works, then he'd let you in. I'm better than a lot of people in the world who do really bad things. You get that answer a lot. 
Some people who are more politically correct might stand before God and say, you should let me in because I was sincere in what I believed. You should know, Lord, that it really doesn't matter what a person believes as long as they're sincere. To all of these answers, the righteous and holy God would say, Depart from me and go into hell, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Because there is no scale in heaven, and it does matter what you believe. You can't sincerely believe in just anything you want and be greeted by God's smiling face on judgment day. Because the way to heaven is very, very, very narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In this lesson from the first four verses of Romans 10, the Apostle Paul wants us to learn why people reject Jesus Christ and how they are made right with God so that there is absolutely no question about their entrance into heaven. The background for this crucial lesson involves the fact that Paul's first century fellow Jews were rejecting Jesus Christ and he desired with all of his heart, for them to embrace Christ in true saving faith. Despite the fact that Israel had been given and blessed by God with his law, and despite the fact that throughout Israel's history, God had pointed them to the coming of Christ and the need for faith in him, most of Paul's fellow Jews were not seeing that connection And when Christ arrived, Israel rejected their Messiah, God in human flesh. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, Paul is addressing this subject. And he is answering the question that was on the minds of many of his hearers. Have the promises of God to Israel failed? Have they failed? And Paul says, no possible way have they failed. And in chapter 9, he begins to explain why. God's promises to Israel have not failed, he says, because God's promises were always ultimately to spiritual Israel. And this includes both Jews and Gentiles sovereignly brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's point was that thousands upon thousands of believing Gentiles were being added to the church along with believing Jews, and he attributed that to God's gracious and sovereign election. So Paul's first answer was, no way have the promises to Israel failed. They haven't failed because God has continued to fulfill his sovereign purposes and election. They haven't failed And as a result, absolute multitudes of Gentiles were becoming Abraham's spiritual children through faith, along with believing Jews. 
But still, this question lingered. Why is it that the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Christ? Why is that? And to answer this, Paul moves from his teaching on sovereign election to teaching about human responsibility throughout chapter 10. And what he says to them is basically this. Israel has rejected Christ because Israel did not want Christ. The Jews thought that they were sufficient in themselves, and so they rejected the all-sufficient one. And that is their own fault. God had not failed Israel. Israel had failed God. Sinners are personally responsible for their rejection of Jesus Christ. Here's the biblical balance on the matter. When sinners are saved and brought to faith in Christ, it is because God alone has graciously saved them in accordance with sovereign election. And God gets all the glory and no one deserves grace. But when sinners are lost... They are condemned because throughout their lives, they personally, actively, personally, actively rejected Christ with every fiber of their being. And it's their own fault. Now in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul wants us to learn just exactly why sinners reject Christ and how they are made right with God. Well, We're covering four verses this morning, and we have four main points to help us to follow what is really a very tightly woven, God-breathed teaching to help us to see why many reject Christ and forfeit heaven and to understand more clearly how a person is saved. Well, Paul begins by laying the groundwork by describing first man's need for salvation. Then he teaches man's condition that creates that need for salvation. You see, these these four verses are like a tightly woven tapestry. Man's need for salvation, man's condition that creates that need that he has for salvation followed by man's natural religion that always results because of his condition. Because of man's spiritual condition, his natural religion is the worship of self and dependence upon self-righteousness. And finally, how a person is made right with God. And when you look at verse 4, it's really one of the greatest gospel gems in all of Scripture. First, we see man's need for salvation in verse 1 when Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Speaking to his fellow Jews, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Oh, now this is the Christian's heart. This is the Christian's heart. This is the Christian's prayer as he considers the unsaved. On the one hand, the Apostle Paul believed in the the necessity of sovereign grace if anyone was to be saved. And on the other hand, he prayed to God that the lost would be saved. 
That's not a contradiction at all. Because God has not only ordained those who would be saved, He's also ordained all the means to reach that end. God uses means. And one of the means that God is pleased to use to bring His people to faith in Christ is our prayers. Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for the lost? Or have you been sidetracked? Have you forgotten what is at stake in the gospel? The Puritan Richard Baxter warns us when he says, there is just one step, one step between the lost and eternal death and hell. Just one step. And that could be our step. It could have been our step if it had not been for people, parents, grandparents, praying for us to be saved. Just before his martyrdom, Stephen cried out in prayer on behalf of those who were murdering him. With a loud voice, he prayed to God, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you know what the Lord did? He graciously answered Stephen's prayer in regard to one young man who was glad to be watching Stephen be put to death, Saul of Tarsus. Saul had not only heard Stephen pray for his murderers, but he had heard Stephen accuse Israel, which was a big slap in the face to this Hebrew of Hebrews who was depending on his own righteousness. He had heard Stephen accuse Israel of murdering the righteous one, which is a title for the Lord God Almighty in Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 53. And Stephen was applying this title to Jesus Christ. Later, when Saul was traveling on the Damascus Road, heart dark, intent on snuffing out the Christian witness in that region, ultimately intent on snuffing out Jesus Christ, at that very moment when Saul was doing everything except seeking God, God knocked him to the ground, blinded him, changed his heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that the apostle gladly let go of all of his presumed self-righteousness to embrace the righteous one. And Jesus basically said to Saul on the Damascus road, you're mine now. You belong to me. Your name is no longer Saul. It's Paul. You've been going that way. You're going to go this way now. And you're going to suffer for my name's sake, for the sake of the salvation of my people. Wow! What do you think now about praying for the lost? Believe me, Stephen's final prayer was burned into the, into the heart of Paul. I'm sure he never forgot that prayer 
And since his conversion, he could even identify with Stephen's heart and prayer for the lost. Literally in Romans 10 verse 1, Paul is praying for his kinsmen in the flesh. And literally, here's what he's saying. My heart's desire, my heart's delight is unto their salvation. You want to know what my heart is all about? It's all about their salvation. Earlier at the beginning of chapter 9, he said with unceasing anguish in my heart, he said, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's because Paul not only believed in prayer, he was a product of prayer. He was just like them. He was going this way. And the more he sped up, the further away he got from where he really needed to be. Well, maybe that's why John Knox in the 1500s pled with God saying, Give me Scotland or I will die. And our denomination, the OPC, flows down from John Knox. George Whitfield in the 1700s said, Oh Lord, give me souls or take my soul. Christian men and women throughout the centuries have agonized with Paul over the fact that universally men are lost and in need of salvation. But then Paul goes on to teach man's condition that creates that need. Because he wants to show us why sinners reject Jesus Christ. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then grabbing the first part of verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Sinners reject Christ. Although they may have a a religious zeal, it's a zeal that has no connection or understanding with the righteousness of God. For For example, sinners don't have true knowledge of the awfulness of their sin and what it deserves. They don't have a true knowledge that Jesus is God and that he came as the God-man and that he died for sinners. They don't have a true knowledge that faith alone, in Christ alone, will save them. But specifically here, Paul is saying that they do not have proper knowledge about the righteousness of God. In fact, he says they're completely ignorant completely and utterly ignorant of the righteousness of God and the perfect righteousness required by God for sinners to be saved. That's our spiritual condition. Shows us why they reject Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, the word ignorant in verse 3 in the, in the Greek means ignorant. It means To not know something. To not comprehend something. Man's condition is that he is ignorant about the righteousness of God and the righteousness required by God for entrance into heaven. 
And because he does not comprehend God's righteousness, he rejects Christ, the righteous one. And this creates his need for salvation. Unredeemed sinners are totally oblivious to the perfect righteousness required by God. And so in their ignorance, they believe, and this makes perfect sense to them, perfect sense. They believe in their ignorance that God grades on a curve and their default position is that they're trusting in their own righteousness, self-righteousness for God's acceptance. That's what sinners do. That's what all sinners, apart from God's grace in Christ, do. They trust in their self-righteousness, and that's sad because the Bible paints a very bleak picture when it comes to human righteousness. Imagine with me every morning that God gives you a quiver full of arrows, and the target every single day that you get up is the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's your target. And every morning, God gives you that quiver full of arrows, and you get up, and you get out of bed, and start your day, and you fire off arrows every once in a while, you know, trying to reach the target. And every night before you go to bed, those arrows are so far off the mark, it's beyond description. And so you pick all your arrows up out of the ground every single night before you go to bed. And you've missed the perfect righteousness of Christ because you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. No, you haven't. But unbelievers don't want to hear about the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. You want to see unbelievers squirm in their seat. Go through the attributes of God and stay with them for about a year. They don't want to hear about the holiness and righteousness of God. They don't want to hear about God's righteous law and its demand upon them for perfect righteousness for entrance into God's heaven. Perfect righteousness. They don't want to hear that. And that's sad. That's so sad. By God's grace, Martin Luther agonized over his insufficient righteousness until he studied Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That's when the Holy Spirit graciously opened Martin's eyes to the righteousness that God provides as a gift to those whose faith is solely in Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now listen, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith to faith. Suddenly Luther could fly. Because he realized that God provides the necessary righteousness that sinners need. And it's received through faith alone. But apart from grace, man's ignorance about the righteousness of God puts him on a road headed due east when he should be going due west. 
And no matter how much zeal he has as he heads due east, it only takes him further away from where he really needs to be. You see, zeal without knowledge is harmful because in your zeal, you can be and you are sincerely wrong. Are you seeing the tight tapestry of apostolic teaching here? First, man's universal need. Second, man's condition that creates that need. Namely, a lack of true knowledge. Particularly, ignorance about the righteousness of God. And then Paul dovetails right into man's natural religion that always results. It always results. It's all around us. It's here in Donovan. It's among those that we should be praying for because they're lost. And we should be praying for them because they're involved in a religion all their own and depending on their own self-righteousness. Verse 3b and c. And seeking to establish their own, that is their own righteousness, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, that's a religion. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If a person is seeking to establish their own righteousness for God's acceptance, they can't submit to God's all-sufficient saving righteousness. That's why people reject Jesus Christ. That's why sinners reject him. You can't do both. It's either one or the other. You have to rely on, if you're not trusting solely in Jesus and resting in his righteousness, one for you, then you have to rely on a religion based on self-righteousness. In order to get to nirvana... Buddhists have to follow the eightfold path of obedience. Hindus have to rid themselves of karma. That is, bad actions and bad motives. Good luck with that. Muslims believe that you have to follow, believe in Allah and follow sufficiently, and your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds uh, at the judgment. Good luck with that one, too. Of course, Muslims also believe that martyrdom and service to Allah is the only guaranteed way of salvation. Jehovah Witnesses must keep the laws of Jehovah and spread the news about the kingdom. You see why they're so zealous? Mormonism has a list of faith and behavioral requirements that goes on and on in order to be saved. In all of these, human self-righteousness is being offered to God in lieu of the perfect righteousness that is given as a gift to believers when they place their faith solely in Jesus Christ. Even atheism is the epitome of dependence on self. These are all religions based on self-righteousness. That's what these people love. And that's what we loved before God's grace came to us. We didn't want to hear about God's righteousness. We wanted to go our own way and be the captain of our own ship. 
You see, the same gospel disobedience is all around us and permeated in every corner of the world. And it's even permeated much of the church today. Some years ago, I spoke to a friend who faithfully attends church here in Donovan. And he told me that he believed that it took faith plus good works in order to gain God's acceptance and go to heaven. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. That is not biblical. Faith plus my righteousness is my ticket to hell. That's what it is. Just so there's no confusion. There is a place for good works and obedience in the life of the Christian. But that obedience is always in thankful response for God saving him. We're we're saved by grace. But we grow in grace. Because God has given us a new heart. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And we're growing in grace and obedience to give God the glory and to uh, say, thank you, Lord, for saving me because I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. But we never can do anything. We should never think of working for God's acceptance. No, 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 no. We serve the Lord and we grow in obedience because He alone has saved us. Well, do you see what people are doing when they say faith plus good work saves a person? They're just giving you a little hint there that they are ignorant about the righteousness of God And the perfect righteousness that God requires to save sinners. Don't you think it's interesting that men always think that God is less holy than what he is and that they are more holy than what they really are? What a condition man is in. And based on his religion, you can see why he rejects Jesus Christ. And that takes us right to this wonderful verse 4. There's only one way a person can be made right with God. Here it is, Paul says. Oh Lord, help us to understand this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You may not realize this, but this is the first explicit mention of Christ since Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And Christ is clearly identified here with the righteousness of God. He's the end of the law for righteousness. For everyone who believes. If you jump down to verse 5, we know Paul is referring to the moral law here. The Ten Commandments, which reflect the very righteousness of God and demand perfect obedience from us. 
Christ is the end of the law in the glorious sense that he has fulfilled it perfectly for us. Did you get that? He's the end of the law. He's the culmination of the law in that he has fulfilled it perfectly for us. So what does that do? That ends our pursuit of righteousness through the law. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We no longer need to think, oh, I need to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. You can throw that right in the trash. No, the righteous one kept God's righteous law perfectly for you so that you might be saved through faith alone in Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. There are three imputations in Scripture. There are three. Adam's sin to all humanity. Adam's sin was imputed to our accounts. It was credited to our accounts because he represented us perfectly. That's the first imputation. From that point, no one deserves grace because we sinned in Adam. And that sin was credited to all humanity. That's why when, people, when men come into this world, they don't come in neutral. They don't come in neutral. That's the first imputation. Here's the second one. Our sin was credited to Christ. Our sin was put to his account. Our sin was placed upon him as if it was his. And he suffered and died, securing our salvation. That's the second imputation. And in that imputation... Jesus paid the infinite debt of our sin before a holy God in his death. The third imputation is Christ's righteousness to us, to those, to all who believe. Christ's righteousness is credited to our accounts. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Well, with the second imputation, our sin credited to Christ, He atoned for all our sin. He died for our sin. And that took our accounts to zero. And 
in the third imputation, Christ's righteousness to us, our accounts are filled up to the brim, not with our righteousness, but with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it, we're dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a gospel we have. And what an opportunity we have to pray for the lost and to be ready and hoping to make friends and build relationships and give the gospel should God afford us that opportunity. But it starts with praying. If we're not praying for the lost, we're not ready to give the gospel. If you were to die today and stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus Christ is my righteousness. He fulfilled obedience for me. He is my King, my Lord, my Savior, my God. Let me in. And all glory be given to you. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you, Lord, for your word to your people. And may all the glory indeed be given to you. Help us, Father, for we are weak, but you are strong. And through your word and through the working of the Holy Spirit, help us to pray for the lost. It only takes one. And there's no telling the great things that God will do through that child of God. And so we pray for our mechanics. We pray for our siblings. We pray for our children. We pray for our extended loved ones who are going the the total wrong way and relying upon their own self-righteousness. We pray, Lord, for this area. Oh God, when when I look at this area, when we look at this area, we can... We can feel some of the same emotions that the Apostle Paul felt for his kinsmen in the flesh. Save souls. Or take ours. Save souls. And bring them, Lord, into your fold. And Father, thank you for the righteousness that is divine, that no human righteousness could ever even get close to. And we pray that you would receive our praise and our thanks for the good things so undeserved that you have done in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.